Good morning, Cornerstone. Uh, my name is Dave Kim. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at, uh, at this church. I'm the assistant uh, community life and discipleship pastor here. Um, and if you have your Bibles with you, please turn, to me, turn with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 1. I have the privilege to share God's word, not as the pastor of the church, but also as a team member, which, I, which is very exciting. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. We'll be reading verse 1 to 17. If you do not have your Bibles with you, it will be up here on the screen for you. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon, has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we pray that during this time as we meditate on your word, may it be not the preacher that uh, convicts people, but it may be your word and your spirit alone. Father, would you convict our hearts to repent of our sin, to turn to you for hope and forgiveness. And Father, may we be able to see Christ shine, not in just the text, but in our life. So Lord, we pray that your glory will be displayed in our hearts. Lord, we pray that in our listening, your Son will come to our forefront. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been hearing throughout the week's updates from our short-term missions trips, 
um, I hope you have room for one more uh, today. In our time together, I want us to consider the prophet Jonah and the story of Jonah, who, though he was not part of our AC team, we can learn a lot from his own mission trip to AC, the Syrian capital. Um, I hope you appreciated my wordplay there because there's a lot coming. Um, it's just a foretaste. The book of Jonah is very ambiguous. It's a very ambiguous book. There was once this little girl waiting to be picked up after Sunday school in the hallway by her parents. Um, and as she's waiting around, the assistant pastor walks by and notices that she's holding a Bible storybook with the title Jonah and the Fish. So he decided to engage in a little bit of playful conversation, and he starts asking the following question. Tell me something, little girl. Do you believe in the story about Jonah and the fish? Of course I do, she replied. The pastor inquired a little bit further. Do you really believe that a man can be swallowed up by a big big fish, stay inside him all the time, and come out okay? Because I can't believe that. It's a little hard to believe. Yes, I do, she replied firmly. This story is in the Bible, and we talked about it in Sunday school. Well, the pastor continued, can you prove this story is true? The little girl thought for a little moment, and then she said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. Finally, the pastor asked one more time, what if, what, what if Jonah is not in heaven? He's in that other place where people don't believe in God. The little girl looked at the assistant pastor and replied, then you can ask him. (laughs) This story story gives us a good picture of the ambiguity and the character of Jonah. Both biblical and secular scholars agree that the book leaves some very important unanswered questions, such as, is Jonah a hero or is he a villain? Is he, someone, is he someone we can point to as an exemplar, or is he someone we should stay away from? The book does not give a satisfying answer, and that's actually on purpose. Because the author, rather than trying to portray Jonah as a hero or a villain, as someone we can point our fingers as an example or to stay away from, he masterfully presents Jonah as a mirror. His life is, a, is presented to us as a, as a mirror, which ultimately points a finger at us and makes us ask this question. Are you living a life of obedience to God? And are you trying to run away from God? I usually try to have a main point of the sermon, um, but today I want to navigate through this story with three questions the text wants us to consider as a people of God. So first, the first question is this. Who is your life pleasing to? Who is your life pleasing to? The second question is, where is a rebellion towards God in your life? And thirdly, have you experienced God's grace? So we're going to look at three, these three questions. Who is your life pleasing to? Where is a rebellion towards God in your life? And have you experienced God's grace. So first, who is your life pleasing to? At the beginning of the story, we find that that God approaches Jonah and tells him to arise and go to Nineveh. And immediately in verse 3, we read that Jonah heard God's command. He rose and he fled. 
In other words, Jonah disobeyed a direct command from God. Jonah disobeyed a direct, clear command from God. And to the original audience, this would have been very, very shocking. And here's why. We're told that Jonah was the son of Amittai. And this is helpful because it confirms that Jonah was not just anybody, but he was a prophet of God spoken of in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. So we're not introduced to a bad boy or a rebel or an outlaw, but a man of God whose sole life purpose was to obey and live for God's pleasure. This is a man whose whole life's purpose and goal was to bring glory and delight and pleasure to God. But instead of learning that Jonah delighted to obey God, he dreaded it and he decided to flee. Now this begs us to ask this very question. Why did Jonah disobey? Why did Jonah disobey? We won't get into the whole history of the context, but at the time, Nineveh was considered to be a threat to the nation of Israel. They were the enemy. In simple, Jonah did not like them. They did not like Jonah. And they were not alike in any way. Did you get that? Jonah did not like them. They did not like Jonah. And they were not alike in any way. We also learn from 2 Kings that Jonah was very comfortable where he was. He enjoyed a good social status as a prophet of God, but also as a prophet of God to the king. You could say that Jonah's life was pleasing to himself. He stopped and looked around his life and said, things are going very well. He was intellectually acknowledged, he was socially respected, and he was definitely culturally accepted by his people. So Jonah's decision to disobey poses an interesting question for us to consider, which is this. Church, how often do you ask, is my life pleasing to God as opposed to, is my life pleasing to myself? I think if we're honest, if I'm honest, I look back at at everything that's going on in my life and tend to ask, am I pleased with my life? What, What am I lacking? What else do I need? As opposed to, is God pleased with my life? Is God pleased in the way that I'm behaving, in the way that I'm carrying myself, in the way that I'm living? Which of these two, two questions do you ask yourself more frequently? For Jonah, his actions show that he's fine serving God if they're kept within the parameters of his own happiness and comfort. See, Jonah is fine with being a prophet. He's even fine with doing the work, of God, the, the work that God calls him to do as, as long as at the end of the day, He can say that the way things are going in his life are pleasing to himself. See, Jonah's obedience is really conditional. It revolves around the word if. Church, how about you? Is your obedience to God conditional? Do you find yourself saying, I'll obey if whatever God calls me to do fits with my pleasure? See, I'll come to church on Sundays if our household is in order and if we have nothing else more exciting going on or places to go and if it's been a while and we need some more spiritual nourishment because frankly I'm starting to feel a little guilty so I need that spiritual Jesus juice. I spend time reading God's word if there are no other more important pressing matters. If I can miraculously wake up at 5.30 in the morning without setting an alarm. If there's peace and quiet in the house, and if I just feel an uncontrollable urge to read God's Word. 
I look for ways to share the gospel at work. If, during our lunchtime together, someone has a deep and honest existential question directed at me, and no one else can answer that, and everybody's listening and paying attention to what I'm saying, I'll give sacrificially to the church if I still have enough money to continue living without having made any significant day-to-day sacrifices. So church, here's the question the text is posing and poking our fingers pointing our fingers and, help and, and asking us, do you live your lives in obedience for God's pleasure or for your own sake? Jonah found God's command to go to Nineveh to be an intrusion in his life and in his happiness. Thus, our text tells us that he ran away from the presence of the Lord three times. Jonah is not trying to run away from the presence of the Lord, the physical presence of the Lord, and and he knows as a prophet that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. Then what is he trying to run away from? Jonah is trying to run away from God's felt presence, his felt presence. In other words, Jonah wants an impersonal God instead of an intimate God. Friends, here's the reality. We believe that obedience does not make God love you more. But deep intimacy, when you experience deep intimacy with your Heavenly Father, it cannot be helped that it leads to unconditional obedience because you've learned to trust Him more in that intimacy. We believe that obedience does not earn you salvation by any means. But it is true that disobedience is a slippery slope that makes your heart grow cold and at times very indistinguishable from people who have never experienced a relationship with God and never experienced His, His redemption. And this is the first question the text is presenting to us. Do you spend more time meditating whether you're living a life that is pleasing to yourself, that seeks to please yourself, or one that seeks to please God in faith and obedience? Because the way you answer this question will either lead you to obey and surrender or tiptoe around God's desires as long as they don't compromise your very own happiness and comfort. And as Jonah goes down deeper into his disobedience by going down to Joppa and further down into a ship to Tarshish, and down into a deep sleep inside the ship, and even deeper down the waters of the sea, the text invites us to, uh, to go deeper down and, and into the story by asking us a second question, and it's this. Where is the rebellion towards God in your life? Where is the rebellion towards God in your life? Before we go any further, let me clarify something. As I'm talking about obedience to God and God being pleased with our obedience, some of you may be feeling a little bit uncomfortable and squirming in your, in your seats because, after all, this is a church of grace. We believe in grace. We believe that good works are but filthy rags and tainted with sin, and, and nothing is sufficient to please God and to earn God's favor. And day here seems to be going on a legalistic route, so someone, please just tackle him. Or cut the mic. (laughs) And before the elders tackle me or someone cuts my mic off, let me explain what I mean, that we can please God in our obedience and that he is displeased in our disobedience. First, 
I'm not saying that based on your record of obedience, at the end of the day, you're going to show it to God and your good works, and God will grant you salvation as a reward. Salvation is by grace alone and faith alone. It was initiated by God in your heart. It is sustained by His the Holy Spirit, and it is finished by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as His righteousness is imputed to us. Secondly, I'm not saying that God's love for you increases during times you obey or diminishes during times you rebel. Those who believe in Jesus, God's love towards you, it's already on max. And unless there's a more valuable, more costly, and stronger display of love than that which was displayed on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, His love is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Third, I'm not saying that God is pleased when His people go through the motions and check the boxes of religion. See, God is not so much concerned about your behavior. He's so much, much more concerned about your heart. But here's what I am saying. If you've been drawn by this affectionate call from the Father, if you've experienced the warm forgiveness of the Son, and if you've been marked and sealed and adopted in faith as a child of God by the Holy Spirit, your obedience as a child of God brings the light to Him. Because in this kind of obedience, you're offering not your works, but you're really offering your heart. In this kind of obedience, you're trusting not in how good you are and how good you can be, but His and how good He has been. Your obedience is not a deposit for God's attention, but rather it's a declaration of His affection and our trust to Him. In Hebrews 13, 15, they put it like, uh, Paul puts it very well. Therefore, by Him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name, but do not forget to do good and to share for with, and to share for which such sacrifices God is pleased. So church, your obedience to God is a response of overwhelming gratitude for the gospel. And this brings great delight, great delight to our Heavenly Father. So maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, let's be realistic. I can't obey God in everything that's unreasonable. I'll try my best, but let's be honest, we can't obey God in everything. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking, maybe you're on the other side of the spectrum, and you're thinking, I obey God in everything. Obedience to God is in perspective of the beholder. I obey God in the way that I feel like is right, and you obey God in the way that you feel is right. I interpret Scripture in a different way. You interpret Scripture in a different way. Let's agree to disagree. And it is precisely to these attitudes that the story of Jonah presses even further the question, where is a rebellion towards God in your life? Is it in your minimalism? Or is it in your rationalism? To the person who considers partial obedience to God good enough, the text reveals that partial obedience is actually rebellion. See, Jonah listened when he wanted to listen. In verse 2, we see a prophet who finds it disturbing that God is asking him to love his enemy and his neighbor. And his running away shows a man that feels that he has a right to obey some commands and neglect others. In simple, Jonah is the type of guy who says, well, we can't obey God in everything. He's asking me to love the Ninevites. That's unreasonable. We can't do that. 
but also to the other person who thinks that they obey God in everything, in every way, in their own way. The story of Jonah condemns that kind of self-justification and pride. And we see a glimpse of this in verse 3. When Jonah decides to go to Joppa, Bible scholars observe that how convenient it must have been for Jonah to find that there was a ship leaving for Tarshish, right the opposite way. And how convenient it must have been to have just enough money to pay for that fare. And how convenient it must have been, this is how you know Jonah was an introvert, to find a private room with a warm bed in which to lay his heads in the deepest chambers of the ship. He may have started to think that God may be behind every aspect of his escape after all. And make him wonder, maybe... Maybe I'm obeying God after all. I mean, why else would he supply the ship? Why else would he supply this wonderful room? Why would he not want my comfort? Maybe this is all a misunderstanding. Maybe this is his way of showing me that he's pleased with my actions. Charles Spurgeon, a famous British preacher, describes uh, he he once had a friend who had a temper problem. And it was his habit to always throw and smash things in his anger. And Charles Spurgeon, when he's reflecting about his friend, he says this, What struck me forcibly was not that he got angry, nor that he threw something when he was angry, but that whenever he was angry, there was always something at hand to throw. Here's the point. The story of Jonah warns us that because our hearts are so deceitful, in our rebellion, we can always find providential, circumstantial rationales to make us believe that we're not as bad as we think and maybe we're obeying God in everything because look my life is just fine everything seems to be falling into place whichever attitude you fall into minimalism or rationalism the story of Jonah is a sobering whisper to you and to me where asking us the question where in your heart are we rebelling against God Where in your heart are you rebelling against God? Because rebellion, minimalism, or rationalism is presumption that we know best. Both reactions are really the same. God, I hear you, but I'm going to go my own way. God, I hear you, but I know what's best in my circumstance, in this circumstance, so let's agree to disagree. Last year, a few of us from Cornerstone went on a medical mission trip to Kenya, and there were... Uh, specific directions to follow if you hope to make it back alive, Um, such as make sure you hydrate and make sure you deet your clothes so that the mosquitoes won't get you, etc., etc. But there was one direction that did not sit well with me, and that was don't eat vegetables rinsed in the local water. And for those of you who travel often, you know this to be true. Sometimes local water consumption is not super friendly to short-stay visitors. And for most of the trip, I can confess and tell you that I managed to stay away and heed that warning. But one thing you need to know about me, church, is that I'm a foodie. I love food. It's one of the splinters on my side that God gave me, one of my weaknesses, my kryptonite. In fact, I take Jesus' command to pray for daily bread very literally and very seriously. I take it up a notch, actually. Not only do I pray for daily bread, I pray for hourly bread. But, and if you're a foodie, you can relate. But on our last night in Kenya, we went out to this burger place at a local mall, and the warning from the team leader was to remove the lettuce from the burger since it would have been washed by the local water. I became so conflicted. I mean, no one would know. 
So I decided to leave that little piece of lettuce in the, in the burger because a burger is not a burger, at the very least, without lettuce. I mean, I love the lettuce crunch right before your teeth sink deep like butter into that burger patty, right? So I decided to leave it in there. But right before I'm about to take my first bite, I could hear the voices of all the medical professionals in our team saying, don't do it. But what do they know? They only have a graduate degree in medicine. They don't know anything about burgers. And as I rebel in disobedience, I proceed to go ahead and try to take my first bite, but then I lock eyes with my wife, Jen, who's also a PA, And I'm not very good at reading eye signals, but I'm pretty sure she said, don't do it. And if the message did not convey, she verbally said it, don't do it. (laughs) But in my stubbornness, of course, I knew better. What do you know about burgers? You eat yours well done, (laughs) right? I eat just medium rare. Like, what do you know? I, I have this rebellious side to me, so I let that lettuce stay in there. And let me tell you, it was glorious. But friends, I'm also here to tell you that it is only by the grace of God that I got back because the very next day, I felt like I was going to die in Kenya or on the plane. And though it was an embarrassing way to go, I had to accept the fact that a little piece of lettuce would have killed me. Now, why am I telling you this story? Minimal obedience, partial obedience, delayed obedience, defensive obedience, at the core is a hard question in God, what do you know? You're the maker of heaven and earth. What do you know about my life? You're just the one who formed me and made me my mother's womb. What do you really know? Church, what area of your life is the Holy Spirit pressing upon you to obey and repent of your rebellion this morning? Maybe you're sitting here and and you're saying, well, I can't think of anything. Nothing comes to mind. Well, let me give you a suggestion. All of you, all you have to do is open your Bible because there are plenty of directions for us to follow and obey in God's Word. For the sake of time, let me just give you one, for one for consideration. If we look at the Ten Commandments, how well do you keep and obey the Fifth Commandment, which is to keep the Sabbath day holy as a day of rest and worship? Do you find yourself taking the minimalistic route that says, God can't possibly ask 52 Sundays a year. That's impossible. I'm not even going to try. He has to be good enough. Two a month is good enough. Or do you reason Do you reason the other way? Do you find yourself taking the rational way, which says, yeah, yeah, Sundays are God's day. It's the Lord's day, but it's also my day. It's also my children's day. When I first began ministry, I was a youth pastor for five years And there's usually a family or a parent who would not bring their kids for an extended of time on Sunday worship. And they will come once in a while. And if I ask them why they haven't been around, they will say, well, it's because we want our kids to thrive. We want them to be involved in things. In fact, it's almost like God wants us to miss Sundays because games are on Sundays. How will God wants our thriving and our comfort and our happiness? So missing Sundays is okay. See, this kind of voice says, God, I hear you, but keeping the Sabbath day holy to me, it means to put something else above worship time. Friends, quite frankly, we could go on and on through every command in Scripture and reveal thousands of ways we consistently rebel against God. 
And just like the sailors in this story who, wrote, who tried their best to row back to shore, I could end the sermon now and charge you all to just row hard and keep trying and keep rowing throughout the week. You'll, you'll, you'll get there. If you keep trying hard enough, maybe you'll be able to obey all of God's commands to the T. But that would only result in fatigue and disillusion because neither willpower nor guilt are powerful enough motivators to motivate us into joyful obedience, which is why the text helps us by asking us one last question, which is this. Have you experienced the grace of God? Have you experienced the grace of God? Starting in verse 11, Jonah's mission strip in, cha- in, this, in chapter 1 reaches its climax. The disobedient prophet has been caught. There's nowhere else to run, no more ships in which to hide, nor a secret backdoor exit, no more excuses. Jonah is caught red-handed. And Jonah knows that it's time for judgment. And knowing that his time is up, you notice that the text, in the text, Jonah doesn't even think it an option to ask God for forgiveness. But rather, he accepts his fate and he asks to be thrown overboard so that he can perish by the wrath of God for being disobedient. But read what happens in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And it's so easy to miss this. But the key word here is appointed because it shows us that all along, God's goal was to save Jonah. That as quickly as Jonah ran away from the presence of God, his grace and mercy was just waiting to meet him in the fish. And in this one word, we find that this fish was not just an afterthought. But it was carefully premeditated and divinely planned to be a shelter that will preserve uh, Jonah's life. And this word, appointed, it shows us that God had already prepared the means by which Jonah would experience undeserving love and deep forgiveness even in the midst of his disobedience. But there's actually also one more thing this word shows us. That by God appointing a means for Jonah to experience grace, the punishment and justice that ought to have fallen on Jonah has been reserved and appointed for a greater vessel to come. See, God had already appointed a greater Jonah, a true prophet, who is called by God to go into enemy territory and preach love and forgiveness. And unlike Jonah who runs in dread, this greater prophet runs in delight. While Jonah finds God's will for him disturbing, this better prophet finds God's will for his life, his joy. And as Jonah is commissioned to go on a short-term mission trip for the salvation of a city, it was but a shadow of a greater short-term mission trip, the greatest short-term mission trip of all time by a greater prophet for the salvation of the world. Church, do you know who this prophet is? Have you experienced God's great grace? This prophet is no other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See, he is the appointed one through whom we experience God's grace. 
It is through Jesus' death that we experience His forgiveness for our sins. Yes and amen. That no matter who you are or what you've done, before time began, God had already appointed a Savior to pay for your sins when you trust in Him. But here's what I want us to focus this morning as we close. The question at hand is, how can we live a life of obedience that is motivated by love and not by guilt and power and willpower? And here's the answer. Here's the answer. Church, learn to gaze at Jesus' perfect life of obedience. Learn to gaze at Jesus' perfect life of obedience because gazing at Christ molds us to be more and more like him. If you were around in the 90s, I probably don't even have to describe who this person is to you. Whether you were a fan of basketball or not, you probably heard the name Michael Jordan. Arguably one of the best basketball players, the best basketball player of all time, depending who you ask. It still gives chills to people when they see him, when they see old replays of his games, when they see him play, bouncing the ball and crossing people over and making impossible last-second game-winning shots. And in the 90s, there was this one incident in particular that just skyrocketed and completely transformed people's obsession with Michael Jordan. It was actually a commercial by Gatorade, the sports drink, and their catchy song titled, Be Like Mike. uh, the, The lyrics to the song go something like this. Sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike. There are actually countless of articles out there that explore the effects of this commercial, and most of them point out that the thing people did to be like Mike was to gaze at Mike. See, you had to watch him a lot. You had to mimic his moves, his clothes, his shoes, his mannerisms, even his tongue as he is sticking it out for the world to see. And the, and the more people observed Michael Jordan the more they were conformed in his image. And it is no accident that this observation is true because the Bible has been telling us long before that if we gaze upon someone of greatness, we will be conformed like them. Passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It reminds us that to gaze upon Jesus that when we gaze upon Jesus, because when we gaze upon his glory of his being, his perfect life of obedience, we feel the urge to not be like Mike, but like Christ. So church, in your times of prayer, in your times when you find it hard to obey God's command, learn to gaze upon Jesus. Gaze upon his perfect obedience. And the more often our hearts make it a habit to gaze upon Christ's life, it reminds us that his perfect life obedience was for you. And have you ever thought about that? Just for a second. Have you thought about that? Christ's perfect life of obedience, he didn't have to prove anything. Church, it was for you. So that in your wretchedness, in your emptiness, you could be filled with a righteousness that you could not achieve on your own. So church, learn to gaze 
upon Jesus' perfect obedience because this is the great news of the gospel. That Jesus' perfect life of obedience, it stands as a defense for our bankruptcy. It stands as a defense for our disobedience to God. That he, died the perf- that he died in perfect obedience because of your and my disobedience. And in our emptiness, Jesus bestows upon you and me his perfect record of righteousness. So that you and I can experience deep, great grace. And once we experience that grace, our hearts awake to ask, how could I not obey? How could I not obey? Church, have you experienced this grace? See, Jonah experienced it through a fish. We experienced it through a friend. Jonah experienced grace by entering a belly of a beast. We experienced it by entering into a family of a king. Church, have you experienced grace? If you have, live. Live to obey and please your Father for in that grace as you gaze each day on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you give us the greatest act of mercy. Not a a fish, but a friend. You give us a Savior in whom we can find refuge. And all of the commands that we break on a daily basis, all of those find forgiveness in him. We find safety from your wrath wrath because of Christ. Lord, teach us to gaze upon our Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.